Let me ask you, have you ever had a really bad date? I mean, a really, really bad date. The worst date I ever had was my first date. My parents were first-generation Christians, and they didn't know that junior hires really shouldn't be dating junior hires, if you can call it that. I went on a short-term mission trip with my youth department to Chihuahua, Mexico, and fell in love with a 13-year-old girl by the name of Risa Evans, who was in our church group. So we became boyfriend and girlfriend while we were in that romantic city in Mexico. We came back. And we decided we would go on our first date to the St. Anne's County Fair in Midland, Texas. It was the middle of the summer. So my parents knew better than just to let me and this young lady go by ourselves. So we had to go with some more young people. So we went with my best friend Jeremy and his girlfriend Macy. And for whatever reason, Jeremy invited a guy that I don't like to this day. And his name is Wade. And he was like the fifth wheel. And nobody needs a fifth wheel. Well, it was like 105 degrees outside. It was so hot. Nobody should have been at the fair, but we were there. So we get there, and I get a corn dog or something like that, and and a nice Dr. Pepper, and I buy one for her, too. My parents gave me a little money so I could do that, you know. And Risa says to me, Tyler, let's ride this ride. And the ride was called the Whirler. And what you need to do is you need to envision an upside-down flying saucer, and it goes round and round and round. And the idea of the ride is that the force of the circular motion will suck you up against the back carpeted wall. Because doesn't that sound like a whole lot of fun? (laughs) Well, I've always had a hard time with round and round things. To this day, I can't do it. So I said, Risa, I don't think I'm going to be able to ride that ride with you. And wouldn't you know it, as soon as I said that, Wade spoke up. And he said, Risa, I'd be glad to ride that ride with you. So I stewed over that a little bit. I wasn't too bright, but I kind of figured out what was going on. And I had uh, pictures of them going into the ride and coming out holding hands and me losing my very first girlfriend. So I said, there is no way I'm letting her get on that ride with him. I am going to ride that ride with her. One of the worst mistakes of my life, all right? So we get in the ride, and it is air-conditioned inside, and it starts spinning very slowly. No big deal at the beginning. But man, they really crank that thing up, and it whirls, and it whirls, and it whirls, and it whirls, and it finally stops, but my stomach doesn't. And I think to myself, I think I'm going to make it. But they opened up the door, and that hot West Texas air hit the air conditioning inside. It hit my face after I had been spinning and I got sick all over my brand new girlfriend's feet, and she was wearing sandals. 30 minutes after that, I was single. Two hours after that, wouldn't you know it, her and Wade were dating. (laughs) You can't have a worse date than that, okay? Well, as bad as that date was, there is a couple in Genesis chapter 29 that had an even worse date. It was their first day, and it just so happened to be their wedding day. And let's read about it in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 15. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, But Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. 
And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week, and he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah his handmaid to be her maid. And he went in unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. We'll finish the chapter later, but we'll stop here for now. Here are the questions I came to ask tonight. Do you believe that in spite of your imperfections and failures, that God really loves you? Do you believe that God can use you and that he has an important plan for your life? Because we're going to meet a young lady in this passage today who believed that nobody loved her and God could never use her and God radically changed her life. And before we get into the passage, I need to give you just a few pieces of background information tonight. First of all, Jacob is the chosen son in the chosen family. If you remember, God came to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, and said, one of these days, I am going to bless the entire world through your family. And in each generation of your sons, there will be a chosen son until one day there will be the chosen son, the son of God. So Jacob is the chosen son. Even though he was the younger brother, he was the one that God chose. But though Jacob is the chosen son, he doesn't always act like the chosen son. His name is Jacob, supplanter, trickster, deceiver. And Jacob really lived up to that name, didn't he? The only reason he's with his uncle Laban in this story in the first place is because he tricked his blind father and cheated his brother out of his birthright and blessing. And you think you have family drama, okay? So Jacob is the, uh, the chosen son in the chosen family, but he doesn't always act like it. So he leaves his father's house. He goes to serve with his uncle Laban. After he's been there, Laban comes to him and says, you know, it's not fair that you should work for me for free. You're doing a good job. I see management potential in you, Jacob. So what will your wages be? And Jacob says, well, from the first moment I saw your younger daughter, Rachel, I loved her. Give her to me and I will serve you. And he says, okay, the dowry is going to be seven years. And Jacob says, that's fine, I'll do it. And Jacob serves his uncle Laban every day for seven years. And the Bible says it seems to be but a day because of the love he had for her. And when we teach this story and we read this story, we usually focus on the love that Jacob had for Rachel. And it was a great love. But there is another character in this story that has arrested my attention. And that's Leah, the ugly sister. 
And in spite of her flaws and imperfections, and in spite of the fact that it seemed that no one really loved her, God really had a beautiful plan for Leah's life, and he would use her in an incredible way. The title of the message this evening is The Beautiful Story of the Ugly Sister. And I want to give you three truths about ourselves and three truths about our God that we see from this beautiful story. In the first place, I notice that we are inadequate in many ways. We are inadequate in many ways. It says in verse 17 that Leah was tender-eyed. How many of you understand that that is the Bible's very delicate way of telling you something that you need to know? The Bible is not making a comment on Leah's eyesight, okay? It is probable that she did have some kind of facial deformity, and maybe it did affect her vision or her eyes. But the verse goes on to say Leah was tender-eyed, but her sister was beautiful and well-favored. Now, if this was about Leah's eyesight, the verse would read like this. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was 20-20. That's not how it reads. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful. What does that mean? Well, by contrast, that Leah was ugly, that she wasn't good-looking, that she had some kind of facial deformity. And you can just imagine growing up every day and being a young lady and having problems with your self-esteem and thinking, you know, I'm not really good-looking. And nobody's ever really going to want to marry me one day. And nobody really wants to be around me too much. And if that wasn't bad enough, her sister Rachel, her younger sister, was born a real knockout, a 10 on the scale. So every time Rachel and Leah entered a room together, Rachel's beauty was celebrated. And Leah felt even worse about herself. Can I just remind you tonight that in at least one area of our lives, if we're being honest, we are all the ugly sister. We're all either too fat or too skinny, too smart or too dumb, too much of a past, too many scars, from the wrong side of the tracks. And all of our physical and financial and family inadequacies are really pointing us to a much deeper inadequacy, and that is our spiritual inadequacy. We all intrinsically understand that there is a holy God and that we have fallen short of his standard of perfection. In at least one way, all of us are the ugly sister, and this story reminds us of that. Well, not only are we inadequate in many ways, but I notice this, we are hurt in many ways. So Jacob stays with Laban and he works for him for seven years. And he says, okay, Laban, I fulfilled my end of the contract. Give me Rachel. I'm ready to have a wedding. So Laban calls all the big men from that uh, part of the world and gets them all together and they have a feast. And that's how they did weddings in those days. And the brides would wear very long veils. And in this case, you can be sure that the veil even covered perhaps Leah's eyes. And so as they were feasting and having a great time, on the sly, Laban slipped in Leah, not Rachel. And Jacob didn't even understand that he had married the wrong sister. And the Bible says they consummate the marriage. And in the morning, I love the way the Bible says it, behold, it was Leah. As the sunlight comes streaming in the tent, the veil is off her face. Jacob leans over to look at his wife that he thinks is Rachel. And it's the ugly sister. 
And he marches right out of his tent and he goes into Laban's tent and he says, you low down dirty dog, you double crossed me, you beguiled me. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Jacob is reaping what he had sown earlier in his story. And Laban says, there's a technicality apparently you didn't know about, some fine print in the contract. We can't give the younger sister before we give the older sister. So here's my suggestion. Go ahead and finish the week of marriage feast, and then I'll give you Rachel too, on promise that you'll work seven more years for her. Now, a lot of times we think that Jacob went ahead and worked seven more years, and then he got Rachel. That's actually not what the text says. He fulfilled the week of Leah, and then he had another wedding with Laban's other daughter, and Rachel was made his wife. Now again, I want you to put your feet in the sandals of these Bible characters for just a minute, if you would, tonight. Imagine you're Leah. And finally, after a lifetime, a feeling that you weren't good enough, and no one was going to love you, and you're inadequate, finally you discover there is someone who loves you and wants you. And you think that he has worked seven years to marry you. And you have a wedding day. And it's the most wonderful day of your life. Someone finally loves you. Someone finally accepts you. Only to find out on the day after your wedding that your father tricked your husband into marrying you and that he wanted your younger sister all along. And then a year later, excuse me, a week later, the younger sister whose shadow you have lived in for all of your life is now brought into your new family and that you recognize you're going to live in that shadow for all of your days. I cannot think of a pain <laughs> any more severe than the pain that Leah feels in this passage. Now, listen, we are all like Jacob and we are all like Leah. Like Jacob, we think if I could just get my Rachel, I would be satisfied. If I could just get my Rachel, I would have what life is all about. And for you, a Rachel might be money. For you, it might be a position at work. It might even be for you a position in ministry. And all of us have in our minds the second half of that equation. If I could just get this, my life would be what it would always want me to be. Or maybe we're like Leah today, and we think if I could just get this person to like me, if I could just date this person or marry this person or get this number of people on social media, then my life would be made. Then I'd be complete. I like the way one author said it. We are always looking for love and satisfaction in the wrong places. We think something will be Rachel, and when we get it in the morning, it is always Leah. Let me ask you, where in your life have you looked for love and acceptance? Can I just be completely transparent with you for a few minutes? In my life, I have always looked for that in ministry. The Lord called me to preach when I was a seventh grade boy. And I've been preaching somewhere almost every Sunday since that first Sunday that God called me to preach. And here's what I learned. That when you preach, people will praise you. And boy, let me tell you what really filled up my love tank. When I would preach a sermon and see people come forward or someone would shake my hand on the way out and they would tell me that was a really great message. And I got addicted to the praise of other people and I really thought that's what life was worth living for. 
I remember getting to Worth Baptist Church as the youth director and thinking, boy, if I could ever get this youth department up to 100 teens, then I will have really made it. Then I will be satisfied. And we worked hard, and we got the youth department up to 100 teens. And guess what? The next morning, I was just as empty as I had been the day before. Then we started an addictions program in our church, and we started from nothing. This is an opportunity for me to build something as a young man. No one else's fingerprints are on this. If I can ever get this up to 100 people, then I'll be complete. And we got 100 on a Friday night at our addictions program. And that next Saturday, I was just as empty, if not more empty, than I'd ever been before. And so maybe I thought, maybe the problem is that that I'm an associate, that I'm a second man. If I could ever be the big guy on the totem pole, and unfortunately that's how I thought about pastoring at the time. If I could ever be the number one, and I could be the pastor of a great church like Worth Baptist Church, then I'd be satisfied. Then I wouldn't need anything else. And you know what happened the day after I became the pastor, just as empty as I was before. Here's what I've learned. It is wonderful to serve the Lord, but ministry is a terrible God. And I always thought when I set a goal, if I could reach it, then I'd be Rachel. Then I wouldn't be Leah anymore. But when I got that thing in the morning, behold, it was Leah. By virtue of our sin nature, we are all looking for love and acceptance in the wrong places. So, um, number one, we are inadequate in many ways. Number two, we are hurt in many ways. And number three, we look for acceptance in many places. Look at verse 31, if you would. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son. She said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left off bearing. Now these are some of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Do you see what's happening here? I think really in an act of mercy on Leah's behalf, God closed the womb of Rachel so she could not have children. So the only way for Jacob to get a son was through Leah. And that day, childbearing was everything, especially having a son was everything. So Jacob went into Leah, even though he favored Rachel. And each time Leah has a son, she gives him a very significant name. The first time she gives birth to a son, she names him Reuben. It literally means see a son. Do you see what's happening here? She must have gotten so excited when she found out she was pregnant. Little sister hasn't gotten pregnant. And boy, oh boy, maybe it'll be a boy, and maybe he'll be the heir of the family, and maybe he'll be the chosen son. And you can almost hear her as she gives birth, and she asks, what is it? And the, the midwife says, it's a boy, and she holds up the boy to Jacob. See, I've given you a son. Now won't you love me? But he didn't. Then she conceives again, and she brings forth another son. His name, Simeon. The Lord hath heard that I was hated. See what's happening here? She started out with a lot of optimism, but now she's in the depths of despair. She's fallen into depression. 
This isn't going to work. He's never going to love me no matter what I do. The Lord has heard that I'm hated. Then she gives birth again, and the third son is named Levi. Apparently, her optimism has returned because that son's name means joined. Now Jacob will be joined to me. He'll forsake my little sister. He will join himself to me. Do you see what's happening here? Every time that Leah has a baby, she hopes that having that baby will earn the love and acceptance of her husband, but sadly, it didn't work. I wish that I would have learned this 10 years ago. As Christians, we do not base our identity on our performance. Remember I told you that I was looking for my identity and what I did for God. As Christians, we do not base our identity on our performance, on what we do, even when we do it for God. And I want you to listen. Boy, that would have changed my ministry if I had figured that out earlier. I want you to hear this. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. And I want to say that again because you need to let that wash over your soul tonight. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. God's pleasure in you is based on Christ's performance for you. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of the King. You have been adopted into the family, accepted in the Beloved. And if who you are in Christ is not enough for you now, it won't be enough when you make more money or get married or get that dream position at work or attain that position serving the Lord at church. A few years ago, quarterback Tom Brady sat down with 60 Minutes. This was before he went to Tampa Bay. During the interview, he said out loud to the interviewer, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. The interviewer asked him, what's the answer? I mean, if Tom Brady married to a Super Bowl, the greatest of all time with millions of dollars in his bank account can't be happy, then the interviewer wants to know what's the answer. And Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. The point is that all of us, because we recognize we're inadequate and because we have been so hurt, are looking for someone to accept us, to affirm us, to approve us. And we all look for it in the wrong places because of our sin nature. Now, those are the things we learn about ourselves from this story. And if that's where the story ends, this is just the ugly story of the ugly sister. There is a very important character we need to introduce and that's the Lord. So this passage teaches us three very important truths about God. Here's the first one. God is attracted to broken people. It doesn't get any more broken than Leah. And the Bible says that when the Lord saw that she was hated, then he opened up her womb. Isn't that wonderful? When the Lord saw that she was hated, then he opened up their womb. I just wrote this in my notes. Everyone wanted to look away from Leah except the Lord. <laughs> Psalm 34 and 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. There is something wonderful in the character of our God that causes him to be attracted to broken people. 
Religion says clean yourself up and then God will love you. But the Bible says just the opposite. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, then he opened up her womb. I want you to hear this. God was not looking for a beautiful thing. He was not looking for a strong thing. He was not looking for a wanted thing. He was looking for a weak thing, for a broken thing, for a hated thing. Because when he moved into her life and transformed her life, there would be no question as to who had done the work and who should get the glory. There is something wonderful about the character of our God that causes him to be attracted to broken people. And listen tonight, if you've ever thought, I'm too dumb, I'm too plain, I'm too poor, I have too much of a past for God to use, you are exactly who God wants to use. Your brokenness does not repel God, it attracts Him. So since we are all Leah's in some way, can we be honest about that tonight? I'm glad that God loves Leah's, how about you? And since we're all broken in some very meaningful ways, I'm glad that God is attracted to broken people. So we learn tonight that God is attracted to broken people. I notice this, God transforms broken people into beautiful people. Now the first three times that Leah had a child, her brokenness was on full display. Somebody loved me, somebody accept me, someone affirm me, and it never worked. But the fourth time she had a child, it was completely different. We read about it in verse number 35. Uh, somewhere between Levi and Judah, Rachel started, or Leah, excuse me, started to call on the name of the Lord. Now, that is a very um, personal way of talking about a person's relationship with Christ. Lord is the covenant name for God. That's the family name of God. And somewhere in the midst of all her hurt and her brokenness and her rejection, Leah began a relationship with God, and she started talking to God, and she started calling out on the covenant God. So this time, by the time she has her fourth child, she names him Judah, and his name means praise. Do you see what happened? God had taken Leah's pain and turned it into praise. He had transformed her from an insecure, broken, hurting woman into a strong, capable, beautiful woman who could praise the Lord in spite of what she had been through in her life. God had done an amazing work. And then it says something even more amazing, that she left off bearing. In other words, she said, I don't need to earn my husband's approval anymore. Now, it wasn't that she didn't want Jacob to love her. Of course she did. But she didn't need his approval anymore. Why? Because she had learned that she had the approval of someone far greater than Jacob. She had the approval of God. And I want you to listen to me. When you recognize how fully loved and accepted you are by God, it frees you. You no longer have to need people. Now, oftentimes what we do when we love people is we're really saying to them, I need you. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch my back. I'll serve you with the idea that you will affirm me, appreciate me, or serve me in return. And a lot of times what we call love is actually very selfish. We do it for what the other person can do for us. 
But when you understand how loved and accepted you are by God, you don't have to live for other people's affirmation or approval anymore. You have the approval of the only person who really matters. Let me ask you tonight, if you really do have the unconditional acceptance and approval of the God of the universe, then what does it matter if one out of seven billion people does not affirm you? It doesn't, does it? And so when you learn that you are fully loved and accepted by God, it frees you to really love people and you no longer need them. You can serve them whether they ever serve you back. You can get involved in church whether anyone ever appreciates you. You can really go all out for someone whether they ever reciprocate. Why? Because you understand that you are fully loved and accepted by God so you can love people but you no longer need people like that. And God took a very broken, very insecure, very hurting thing, and he transformed it into a very strong and God-sufficient thing. And that's just what our God does. He takes broken things and he makes them beautiful. Now here's the last point tonight. Not only does God take broken things and make them beautiful, God uses broken things to change the world. Now remember that I told you at the very beginning of the sermon that in each generation of this family there was a chosen son. And one day coming from that line would be the chosen son. Jacob would end up having 12 sons, but who was the chosen son in his family? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? When God was looking for a chosen son, he did not pick the son of the beautiful sister. He picked the son of the ugly sister. Because God takes broken people, transforms them into beautiful people, and he uses them to change the world. It's a wonderful thing. I heard the story one time about a pastor who was preaching at a big conference. There were thousands of pastors there. And he started going around and he took the survey around the auditorium. And he said, if you were the captain of the football team, I'd like for you to stand up. And a few guys stood up. He said, if you were on the cheerleading squad, ladies, I would like for you to stand up. And he said, if you were the valedictorian or the salutatorian, I'd like for you to stand up. If you made a who's who at your high school or at your college, I want you to stand up. If you came from a wealthy home, I'd like for you to stand up. And he asked all these questions, trying to figure out who the rich and who the powerful and who the pretty people were in the congregation, okay? And by the time he finished, there was about a third of the people standing, two-thirds still sitting. And he spoke to those who were standing, and he said, Folks, I've got good news for you, and I've got bad news for you. The good news is God can use you too. The bad news is you're not his first choice. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. We're not talking about Leah tonight because she was talented. We're not talking about her because she was gifted or beautiful. She did not have any great ability to give to God, but what she did have was availability. You know, God doesn't need ability. He has plenty of that. What he needs today is availability. 
He needs some people who will give him their broken little lives, all of them, and trust that he can do something amazing with it. And I, I just came to tell you this tonight, okay? God can use you. He can use you. And don't you ever insult him by telling him that he can't. And the great tragedy is not that you would not do what he uses someone else to do. The great tragedy is that you would not do what God wants to use you to do. Abraham was an idolater. Moses was a murderer. Peter was a denier. Thomas was a doubter. Paul was a persecutor. D.L. Moody had a fifth grade education. Charles Spurgeon was a short, overweight guy who had a depression problem. If God could use them, why can't God use you? If you really believed that God loved you and had a beautiful story for your life, it would change everything. I really loved being in youth ministry, but one of the saddest visits that I ever made when I was in youth ministry was to the home of a young lady by the name of Alejandra. And Alejandra was 13 years old, and a few weeks before, she and her best friend down the street had made a suicide pact. That was very popular for a little while. And her friend had been successful. Alejandra's best friend had taken her life. Alejandra cut her wrist, but someone found her before she bled out. They took her to the hospital. She was in uh, the psych ward for a couple of weeks until finally they would let me come visit her. Now she was back at her home. I pulled up to her house, and it was little more than a shack. Alejandra rode the buses to our Sunday school. Alejandra didn't have a bed, so her and her brother would share the couch. Her and her mother often did not have enough food to eat, and they would skip meals all the time. Alejandra's grandfather had been the breadwinner for the family, but he had died a year before, and her dad was in jail. She really didn't have a lot going for her. And I went up to her little shack where she was, and I knocked on the door, and she came out. And she had that kind of stone-cold expression on her face. Anybody in ministry has seen that before. And I said, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. And Tori and I have been praying for you. And I tried to encourage her, and I tried to cheer her up, and I tried to tell her that God had a purpose for her life, and nothing was getting through. And so I said to her, Alejandra, if you really believe that God loved you, would that give you a reason to live? And she looked at me defiantly. I will never forget it. And she said, how could I believe that God loved me? I didn't know what to say. So I said, Alejandra, what would God have to do to you to prove, for you to prove that he loved you? So she started listing off all the things that were wrong in her life. Uh, he'd have to bring my grandfather back from the dead. He'd have to get my daddy out of prison so those two guys could go to work and Someone could afford to buy me a bed, and I could have enough to eat every night. And oh yeah, it sure would be nice if he'd bring back my best friend, the only person I felt like I really had. If God did all of those things for me, then maybe I would believe that he would love me. And I looked at her at that moment, and I said, sweetheart, God is probably not going to do a lot of those things for you. But what if you did something else? What if God himself came down to your shack and he lived with you and he shared the couch with your brother and he missed meals with you 
And what if he lived here for three years and after doing nothing but being absolutely nice to you, you spit on him and you made fun of him and you plucked out his beard and you hung him up like a piece of meat on a cross. And then with his dying breath, he said to his father, Father, forgive her. She doesn't know what she's doing. And I said, Alejandro, if he did all of that for you, then would you believe he loved you? And then would you have a reason to live? And tears started pouring out her eyes. And she said, yes, Brother Tyler, if he did that for me, I would believe he loved me. And that would give me a reason to live. Can I tell you that God settled the matter of his love for you on the cross of Calvary? And in spite of your flaws and imperfections and brokenness and hurt, he proved once and for all that you are incredibly valuable to him and that he has a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story to write for you. Do you believe he loves you? And do you believe he can use you? And I think if we just come and give him the little broken lives we have, lock, stock, and barrel, we'd be shocked with how he could transform and use us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Leah. I think we all identify with her. I'm glad, Lord, that you are attracted to weak and broken things. And that it is in your heart to love those things and change them and use them for your glory. And Lord, if there is someone here tonight who has never received the incredible love of Jesus Christ, I pray this evening they would. And for the rest of us, help us to truly believe it and not to doubt it. And I pray that even this evening we would surrender our lives to you in a new way. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there's anyone here who'd be honest enough to say, Pastor, sometimes I do struggle to believe that God loves me and that he could really use me. I sometimes wonder why he made me the way he made me or why I've had to go through in my life what I've had to go through. But tonight I am willing to believe by faith that he does love me, that he does have a plan for me, and he does want to use me. If that's you this evening, would you lift your hand with mine? God bless you. Maybe some of you would say, to be honest, I often look to people or things to give me joy. The way that Jacob looked to Rachel or Leah looked to Jacob. Tonight I recognize that I need to put my joy and satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone. If that's what God spoke in your heart about tonight, would you lift your hand with mine? Well, that's many of us tonight. God bless you. And I would hope this would be the prayer of all of God's people. Pastor, since God can use broken people, I want him to use me. And tonight I want to surrender or resurrender my life to him, lock, stock, and barrel. I'm making my broken little life fully available to him.
If that's you, would you lift your hand with mine? God bless you. Many of you have raised your hand tonight. Perhaps you'd like to seal these decisions with a trip to the altar. Let's stand together. Father, speak during this time of invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray.